What if you could make pure protein by feeding microbes CO2 and hydrogen? This technology is independent from soil and sun and just pretty badass. In this season, we have looked at precision fermentation and biomass fermentation. Both of these technologies need some kind of agricultural input. For example, in precision fermentation and liquid biomass fermentation, you have a certain broth in the bioreactor that needs inputs like sugars and other nutrients. And in solid biomass fermentation, you would have some kind of grain, let's say, for example, barley, where you grow mycelium on it, which is the root structure of a mushroom. But what if you wouldn't need any of that? What if you could use a microbe that is so efficient that it makes proteins from CO2 and hydrogen? And what if you could actually make a lot of the things from precision fermentation just from hydrogen and CO2? Gregor came across gas fermentation on a quest to find the most sustainable food humanity can produce. I mean, we have enough CO2 to produce loads of food from that. You'll hear from Gregor Tegel, co-founder and CEO of Archeon, a company based in Austria. We also talk about food additives, how ingredient labels are gamed, and have a little crash course in food tech biology. This was a super enjoyable chat with Gregor. I hope you will enjoy it as well. Let's jump right in. Red to Green is the most in-depth podcast on food and agriculture sustainability. Covering each topic in over 12 episodes, let's move the food system from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt, and you're listening to Season 6, Biotech in Food. Let's talk about gas fermentation. By the way, I was just today talking to a VC about it, and she mixed it up with biogas. Biogas. Yeah, it's not. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. <laughs> yes. Instead of creating gas, you use gas. We use gas, exactly. We use gas. What kind of gas are you using? So the gases we're using is carbon dioxide and hydrogen. That's all we need. Mm -hmm. So we are having this anaerobic gas fermentation, like no oxygen involved, which is pretty neat. And so our microbes consume carbon dioxide. They are using hydrogen as an energy source. That's what they need, and that's all they need to happily grow and produce all 20 proteinogenic amino acids that we need in our food, like all at once. Proteinogenic literally means protein building. Proteinogenic amino acids, also known as standard, essential, or primary amino acids, are those 20 amino acids that are the building blocks of proteins. So you were saying anaerobic means there's no, no oxygen, oxygen involved. Why does that make a difference? So there are two major differences. The one thing might be a bit nerdy and that's about the microbe. If a microbe is feeding on carbon dioxide and it doesn't have any oxygen present, it's generally a metabolism that is much more efficient utilizing this carbon dioxide. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, if you do like gas fermentation, you know, you have gas mixtures that you're utilizing, like we are using carbon dioxide and hydrogen. The more complex the gas mixture gets, the more complicated it gets. It's very easy to play with two different Lego bricks. It's not as easy to play with five different Lego bricks. And that's exactly the same thing with gas fermentation. You're having one gas more. You have one factor more you have to take into consideration. And also from a safety point of view, you might have heard about canal gas, which is this explosive gas mixture, hydrogen and oxygen. And you simply don't want to mix it in the right proportion. So it's, there's also a safety aspect that can be controlled usually very well, but it's always a residual hazard. And if you're getting rid of that, why not if you can? 
I know that a lot of you truly care for the environment, and many of you are founders or want to found. Well, I have something exciting here. The leading VC Food Labs is teaming up with their sister fund Atlantic Labs to launch a Founders for Climate program. This is an entrepreneur-in-residence program for climate-focused founders in Europe. You receive pre-seed funding for your incorporated company, mentoring and advisory, and access to their network, which includes over 150 portfolio companies. By the way, the precision fermentation startup Formo, that we featured in season one and season three, was founded by an entrepreneur-in-residence at Food Labs. You will find more info on their climate and food-focused programs at foodlabs.com. If you or someone you know wants to found or is founding a climate venture, check out foodlabs.com. Foodlabs.com. Starting with something like CO2, something so invisible as the source, the input for your end product that seems to come from um, a quite fancy place of thought. How did you get to the point of deciding, okay, we're not going to use any normal input, we are going to use CO2, we're going to use gas? It's all about producing things as sustainable as possible on this planet, right? And for me, that was for the longest time using enzymes to produce things because I thought like enzymes are keeping us alive. They are responsible for all the things that we do in our body. And at some point I recognized there are all these microbes who are producing things that we know and many things that we don't know about. And that brought me into fermentation in itself, like traditional fermentation, sugar-based fermentation, where you take sugar and any organic material as a feedstock. And it took me a long time to understand the beauty of gas fermentation because I always thought, oh, that's something I heard of in my studies. It's very fancy. Is it really as matured? And it needed a meeting one of my co-founders, Günther, who is also the CTO of Archeon, to fully understand that's a mature technology that we can actually yeah. use. And it was very shady for me at the beginning, like having something, you bubble in something in a bioreactor, like a gas, like CO2, and that's what the microbe feeds on. It's far away from our understanding, right? We are also not breathing air and survive just by doing that. But ultimately, that's the story, always finding a way, can you get one step further in being more sustainable and ultimately stepping away from agricultural inputs for fermentation for me is the ultimate sustainability. Yeah, in our first season on cellular agriculture, I had an interview with Pazi Vainika from Solar Foods. And I remember him saying something that really struck with me. He said, it's like adding a new harvest to humankind. It's just a completely new source of food. Yeah, it's beautifully said. Having something that is independent of agriculture is incredibly important. We already talked a bit about biomass fermentation, about precision fermentation, and maybe we can compare these technologies a little bit. So how does the process look like that you are using at Archeon? If you look in our bioreactors, it looks very much like traditional fermentation. So what we're doing at Archeon is we're taking off-the-shelf bioreactors. We're having a fermentation process that is operating at atmospheric pressure, so we don't need to pressurize our vessels, which is a great advantage from an energy and economic perspective. And the only difference is that our culture medium is not based on sugar-based medium, yeast extract, and so on. It's all about a salt water solution, a simple salt water solution, in which we are bubbling CO2 and hydrogen, and that's all our microbe needs. So when you look at the bioreactor, very similar to a traditional fermentation, very similar to beer brewing or whatever you're well accustomed to, 
except for the fact that we're bubbling in the gases and that's all our microbes need. So they are really growing on salts, on simple salts and on carbon dioxide and hydrogen. It's more or less, if you look at it in traditional fermentation, you have, we call it the organic material, something that is made up of sugar that's organic. And we in, in gas fermentation, we're using inorganic compounds, something that doesn't have more than one carbon inside. And that's an amazing thing. And it still converts all these simple ingredients into complex materials like amino acids in our case or proteins or whatever you like. You said you don't need to pressurize the vessel. Yeah. But for a lot of other applications, one needs to do that. Why? So it's all about the solubility of the gases. Gases dissolve in liquid as much as all other or many compounds do, but they're very poor in doing so. So if you put pressure, if you pressure them more or less, as it says, you actually incentivize them to dissolve in solution. And the more gas you have dissolved in solution, the better it is, right? We also like to sit in front of an entire pizza than just in front of a tiny piece of pizza. But the advantage is that our microbes are just so efficient with these low concentrations of gas in the liquid phase that we don't have the necessity in doing that. But mm. ultimately, the reason is solubility. Would pressurizing also be used in precision fermentation, by the way? It depends. There is a natural pressure that is accumulating a bit, but ultimately you can't even do that because most microbes, bacteria that you would use for precision fermentation, if it's a yeast or if it's an E. coli, they wouldn't withstand these pressures. So actually a, a lot of microbes feed on gases. They actually also evolved to be very resistant towards pressure because they simply benefit from the pressure. But in traditional fermentation, you don't need that. It sounds a little bit like the gas fermentation microbes are like the bad boys of the, <laughs> of the microbe family. We can just survive and goddamn gas and we can be pressured and we are totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> but aren't they also the good boys? Because ultimately they're eating away the carbon dioxide that we anyway have in excess and bring it back to something that we can utilize again. So Yeah, sorry. Bad boys being good is like so anchored <laughs> in my in my brain. Of course they're good. They're True awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um and how different are the microbes that you're using from precision fermentation otherwise? It's like a completely different area of research. Yeah, not so much. It's generally about the feedstock, right? There are microbes that are feeding on sugar, there are microbes that are feeding on gases. And there are bacteria, for example, who can do the one or can do the other, or there are some that can do even both. But ultimately, it's a bit different at Archeon, since we are not using bacteria or prokaryotes, as they are called. If you're aware of the three domains of life, they are made out of prokaryotes, eukaryotes, and then there's archaea, which is the weird little brother, pretty young. No one was aware about them until 56 years ago, like fully characterized to call them archaea. And they are somewhere in between in their metabolism between prokaryotes and eukaryotes. So they are very fancy microbes. One of the oldest microbes known to grow is they on planet Earth since more or less ever, since there's life. And actually, there's the working theory that humans actually emerge from archaea and generally eukaryotes, which is pretty cool. So they are somewhere in between and they're very special. That's maybe, in our case, a bit different. They are incredibly cool since they adapted, like, to habitats on this planet that we would never like to experience, mm. unprotected at least, like underwater volcanoes, some high salt lakes and so on, where they are just happily growing and they adapted to flourish there, while we would not be happy sitting right next to an underwater volcano. 
DNA sequence comparisons consistently categorize all living organisms into three primary domains. First, bacteria. Second, archaea. And they are written in a very weird way. We will put this in the show notes if you want to look it up. Bacteria and archaea are called prokaryotes, which means they're unicellular organisms. And they were likely the first ones on planet Earth. Almost all prokaryotes have a cell wall, a protective structure, that allows them to survive in extreme conditions. That isn't always the case for the third type, which we are part of. The third, eukarya, also called eukaryotes, as Gregor puts them, include us and all other animals, plants and fungi. All organisms whose cells have a nucleus to enclose their DNA apart from the rest of the cell. The bottom line is that different technologies and processes tap into different types of organisms, and it is pretty useful to have a bit of an overview. Most traditionally fermented foods, including kimchi and sauerkraut, are made using bacteria. Precision fermentation also uses bacteria, but they are most likely genetically engineered. It also uses yeast, which is part of the fungi kingdom, so the third area. But the second category is the one that we are talking about right now. The archaea survive incredibly extreme environments and deserve special attention. Don't worry if this was too much info all at once. You'll find this part in the show notes if you want to read it. So do you need to apply any genetic engineering to your microbes? No, we don't. It's like we're really using a wild type a microbe as we found it. It was really an incredible discovery of our co-founder, Simon who was working on this train and really just slowly realizing the magic of this microbe, that it's like excreting all these amino acids, all the building blocks of what we actually feed on all at once. So that's what the microbe does all naturally. And then maybe for listeners who are not that deep into biology, can you describe what amino acids are, what their purpose is for the human body? Why do we need them? Yeah, sure. Amino acids are the building blocks of protein. We need it for so many things to maintain our body mass, to actually grow muscles. It's so important for so many pathways and for so many things in our body to maintain our whole metabolism, to get a strong immune system, everything, so many processes. And protein is the term that we always use. Proteins are really built up from amino acids. They're a chain full of amino acids. And ultimately, where the body is getting the energy from, and what the body utilizes are amino acids. We are eating proteins, so if we would eat like alternative proteins, for example, a soy or pea protein, what the body does, it's excreting enzymes, and our gut microbiomics is excreting enzymes that degrade and digest the protein into its building blocks. And ultimately, once all these enzymes in our guts degraded the protein into amino acids, the amino acids will get in our bloodstream, and ultimately that's what we feed on. That's why we're always talking about the biological value of proteins. Do they contain all the amino acids we need? That's also something we are discussing in comparison to animal protein, that this usually has this composition that we all aspire towards, although it brings so much other disadvantages with it. And is there any kind of advantage to eating the amino acids directly versus getting the entire protein? They're immediately available. That's definitely an advantage. So if you're having a protein, it must be degraded. We know that the digestibility of a lot of plant proteins is not optimal. 
So while with animal-based protein, it's fully available to us, we can easily degrade it into the amino acids. We're having an issue to do that with many plant proteins. That is ultimately also a great advantage of providing just amino acid as a nutrient source because they're directly absorbed, right? From a manufacturing perspective, they're also offering great advantages because they're much more soluble, for example. If you try to dissolve pea protein into a drink to get a protein drink, it, it takes mm -hmm. quite some time to have it really in solution. The amino acids, we just throw it in there and poof, they're just dissolved, which makes it also really great for manufacturing different kind of products and potentially also the next generation of alternative protein products. Yeah, that sounds like it would be actually a good application for athletes who need the available protein bump for the competition or something. But where are you going with your amino acids. We are a B2B, so we're an ingredient provider and we are ultimately providing mixtures with different functionalities when it comes to the nutritional profile, but also to flavor profiles because amino acids are also the building blocks of flavors, which is very mm -hmm. exciting. And we are in collaboration with startups and companies on different products, it, which starts with vegan seafood to vegan egg, uh, protein beverages. This is where we're definitely providing a solution that is much more pain-free than the existing solutions in the vegan aisle, especially. So I could see this being applied to some kind of plant-based product that then can say, this contains all of the amino acids, right? Exactly, that's exactly it. There is one where we can aspire towards a full nutritional profile. So having a perfect digestibility score or a perfect composition of amino acids that we need in our nutrition. Another mixture that we're producing uh, is slightly sweet, which is super nice if you put it in beverages. You have a natural sweetener based on amino acids, no sugars added. And that's ultimately really the magic of using amino acids that you can actually tailor them and purpose build them towards the needs of an end product. And that's definitely a flexibility that we can deliver that is more difficult to deliver if you take, if you produce one protein that comes with a given set of flavor, solubility, and functionality. I really like the sugar application. Have you thought about going more down that route and to create a protein-based sugar replacement? Yeah, we're thinking, clearly we're thinking about it. That's what we are currently doing. What our food scientists are doing are really showcasing our products in showcase products in-house to really see what are the capabilities, what are the boundaries uh, of our ingredients, but more to come, more to come. Yeah, I always wonder how much of a real concern true health is in the B2B segment because it's so hard for consumers to judge. Does this have all the amino acids? Is this actually good for my gut microbiome? And it's also very hard to communicate certain benefits of very specific ingredients because you only have that much attention on the label, that much space to explain it. And if some kind of nutrition bar now adds this little explanation of, oh, we have amino acids due mm. to this gas fermentation technology. Usually people don't really want to know anything about the processing as much as we want to know about it as food tech nerds. So when you talk to B2B players, is it really about the health benefits or is it more about sugary feel and taste and texture or other secondary benefits? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. And that's something that I'm feeling very strong about already since 15 years. I'm also a foodie. I'm really thinking a lot about health implications of our nutrition. And it's ultimately that. And generally where we can definitely help is if you apply them like, and you purpose-built them and purpose-built the functionality of these ingredients, 
uh, you can actually avoid adding lots of additives in alternative protein products. That's one of the major issues that I'm seeing in the space right now, that we are just having a huge ingredients list. And this huge ingredients list is built up by quite a number of additives. And I also know it from a personal experience. Once I did an allergy test and they figured out that like 70% of the allergies or sensitivities actually I have are derived from additives that I can also find in ingredient lists. This is something that we can avoid simply by the fact of having a protein ingredient, for example, based on amino acid that comes with the functionalities that we want, but is lacking the trade-offs, like all the unwanted functionalities, like the off-taste that sensitates the use of maskers. And that's definitely something where we can help. I'm not saying we should only eat amino acids from now on. We should also have our proteins because the enzymes that our gut microbiome is excreting, they're degrading the protein in peptides, amino acids that also the gut microbiome is feeding on and producing value-added compounds from that, like short-chain fatty acids and so on. So it's definitely a good mixture, something that can really help us out here. And another little definition hook, peptides. Peptides, exactly. An incredibly exciting class of molecules, which is just short chains of amino acids connected. You can see it as like the tiny version of a protein, much less complex, of course, but still incredible on its functionalities. We are also working on peptide production technologies at Archeon. And we see the many functionalities that even short peptides have from flavors, from textural properties, emulsifying and chelating properties, which makes this molecule class incredibly exciting. And it's part of our food. That's either protein is degraded into peptides and amino acid, or some of the flavor compounds of all of our favorite foods around the world, like cured ham or very strong flavor profiles. They are containing lots of these short peptides that build up this like complex flavors many people admire. Actually, I found it really interesting what you were saying about the additives. One of my research areas, it's a never-ending list. And one of those is how ingredient lists can be manipulated. Mm. And I know already there are some ways like you can group certain items in different ways. You can think about trying to change the formulation of a product so that the first two free things that are mentioned don't seem to be that bad. Of course, if like the second ingredient is sugarcane, then people will be like, what the hell? If it ends up on place four, it's not that bad, even if it's still overall the same amount of sugar. Mm. So there is a lot of poker playing in there. And then there's the question of additives versus natural flavors. How would you mm. distinguish them? Natural flavors and natural aromas, they have a certain definition. It's occurring in nature. It's part of a product, be it the flavor, a coloring compound or flavor compound of, for example, a strawberry. And the natural flavor can still be produced synthetically as long as it's occurring in nature. An additive is a pretty broad term for mostly everything like even a protein ingredient can be an additive mm. so that is that's really the broad term where it gets bad is like that some of the additives are really unnatural and that we are not really accustomed to i don't think that we would naturally eat lots of methyl cellulose which is now a bulking agent for most of alternative protein products nowadays so additive is just a broad term for me while natural flavor is something defined in the realm of additives and maybe we can find a way to find like the verticals of additives what are the maybe subcategories of additives there could be a, for example binding compounds exactly fillers. Yeah. 
Exactly. There's all the different things. Let's start with the most obvious one. Yeah. Bulking agents, binders. That's what we just referred to as methyl cellulose. Flavor components, texturizers. There is maskers, ultimately flavor maskers. This was a very big thing, much needed to mask the off flavors of many compounds that we're currently using, including plant proteins. There are some stabilizers that are used not only in alternative protein products, but in many more like emulsifying agents, lecithin, for example. There are some other kind of compounds, even like acid, citric acid. The citric acid is usually written like just mm. a citric acid because we're well accustomed to it, but it ultimately has an E number as well. It's not a bad compound, just acidifies your product for whatever reason, may it be shelf life, may it be also having a like a flavor component to it. There's really a lot. I actually, I keep forgetting for sure some now. But if you read through an ingredients list, that's what you most likely encounter. Also, adding on that, not every additive that we are now discussing is bad. It's not like citric acid is a really bad thing. There are just some very specialized additives that we are finding more and more in our diet and that we're just evolving an insensitivity towards because some of us are just not accustomed to it or our body is just not accepting these high amounts. One of the people from the Red to Green team, Celeste Gupta, who has been with Red to Green since 2020. It's been a while. Yeah. Thanks, Celeste. She works in the colorants industry and she had a very good point recently that she said it's oftentimes not like food scientists or food producers want to go out and harm people, but you have a certain objective, you want to create a certain taste, you want it to be durable, a certain texture, and at the same time reach a certain price point and she was like, it's not like we're trying to add loads of these additives. It's just sometimes the only way to go. There is no good alternative to it. Or it also, as you just said, isn't always bad. It cannot be generalized that anything that's not already inherently in a whole food plant-based product, anything that's added to that, that this is going to be bad. Yeah. And ultimately, the way to help out here is to provide diversity in the ingredient space. It's ultimately, if you have more choices, you can be more creative and you can actually take, create ingredients that might come with different health implications. And that's ultimately it. We are in the alternative protein space. If you look at it, especially on the ingredients list, it's very much always the same. That starts already at the protein side of things. What can you take? If you want to scale an alternative protein product, what else can you really take except soy, pea? There are some alternatives, which there are regional and geographic differences. But ultimately, that's about it. Yeah. You're talking a lot about the alt protein industry. How much are you focused on the alt protein space and how much are you trying to sell to more conventional parts of the food system? We are not only looking in the alternative protein space. Clearly, we see advantages there, but the same holds true for Arkin-specific ingredients for the supplement space uh, as well. Also, traditional applications of, of amino acids. And also, I mentioned that we're also working on technologies producing functional peptides. That is also where the cosmetics industry is desperately searching for sustainable alternatives, like sourcing of sustainable ingredients, I should say, in the cosmetics space is troublesome. And mm. we are also definitely having ingredients outlined that can provide a major relief for this industry as well. And you mentioned traditional application of amino acids. What are the ones in the food industry? Flavor and seasoning, a lot. Amino acids are the building blocks of flavors and seasoning. Some amino acids have a flavor. I, we mentioned the sweet amino acids, for example, but there are also others like methionine if, is an amino acid that tastes like potato peel. 
doesn't sound appealing first, but if you <laughs> use it as a seasoning, it's sometimes really quite amazing and many others. So that's where it finds implications. I know quite a few of you are actually in different industries and really want to become part of the food industry. And sometimes that's pretty tricky without having some experience in the food industry. Well, fortunately, at Red to Green, we are looking for people to get involved, to write blog articles, to summarize the knowledge that we are gathering and to make it more available, but also to help us with research and the preparations for a book. On redtogreen.solutions, you'll find a type form where you can reach out to get involved in a pro bono position. So check out redtogreen.solutions or find the link in the show notes. Then let's maybe zoom out a little bit into gas fermentation again in general. You are using it for a very specific purpose, but what are the other possibilities? What else could be produced by gas fermentation? So, so many things. You can imagine that you more or less can produce everything that you're currently producing by precision fermentation also by gas fermentation. On the one hand, using microbes that are naturally producing these compounds, that in our case, our microbe is naturally producing amino acids, but there are also microbes that are naturally producing kind of lipids or any kind of other, what we call commodity chemicals, being it acidic acid or methanol, for example. And on the other hand, you can also genetically engineer microbes to recombinantly produce any kind of proteins or any metabolites. So using precision fermentation more or less. In season one on cellular agriculture, we featured a company called Solar Foods, a startup that seems to do something pretty similar, but with a different microbe. Like Archeon, Solar Foods uses CO2 and hydrogen, but also some vitamins and minerals. Archeon separates their microbe from the end product, just like you would in precision fermentation, because the production is extracellular, so outside the cell. The microbe spews out the protein. Solar Foods uses the entire microbe because the amino acids are produced intracellularly inside the cell. Therefore, it's closer, therefore it's closer to liquid biomass fermentation. So you can really take the entire biomass. You don't have to crack it open, isolate the protein. So it's a holistic kind of nutrient source, right? It, does, it comes with a high protein content, of course, but it also comes with a residual amount of carbohydrates, of lipids, and so on. But it also depends on the microbe and ultimately how you can or have to process it in order to make it edible. And for you, what does the downstream process look like? Do you separate the amino acids from the microbes? Our microbes are naturally spitting out the amino acids out of the cell. So we have our amino acids swimming around in the culture medium. So they are not inside the cell anymore, but outside the cell. In our case, we just get rid of the biomass, which is also a secondary a nutrient source that we are exploring, but our primary product are the amino acids. They swim around in this salt water solution, which is our culture medium. And we're separating the salts from the amino acids by membrane technologies. Yeah, and there we go. We're just trying the amino acids then. And we end up with a kind of whitish powder of amino acids that can be used for applications. Okay. So then let's do a little battle. Okay. So <laughs> let's battle gas fermentation against precision fermentation. And of course, there are lots of variables. I already see maybe input costs or a regulatory pathway in your case. Give me the pitch. Why should every company in this world <laughs> switch to gas fermentation to exaggerate it? 
Um, gas fermentation, on a romantic point of view, it's using an industrial off-gas, like a greenhouse gas, to convert it into something edible. I think that is something that definitely has its magic. We don't have to grow anything on arable land to feed our microbes to produce what we want to see in our end products. Yeah. That is definitely a huge advantage also on the sustainability side of things. We are ultimately consuming CO2. And if we are designing our uh, process thoughtful and the entire value chain within our reach, meaning scope one, scope two, that we actually have uh, emissions that we have an influence on, then we are just the most sustainable way of producing something by fermentation. Lancetec has this CO2 to ethanol fermentation and they proved that their bioethanol as a fuel is much more sustainable than traditional sources of ethanol production and general fuel production. And with that comes the feedstock issue. If you're independent of agriculture, you can ultimately produce wherever you find CO2 and wherever you find water and be able to produce electricity. The way we're producing electricity on this planet, we're seeing the renewable ways of producing electricity. If it's like solar PVs, if it's wind, combining that with battery storage makes it one of the cheapest ways of producing electricity. Having lesser of an issue on the feedstock side and being independent of everything that is currently happening on our planet from geopolitical situations to climate fluctuations that are severely affecting our crop yields, I think that's another really nice feature and reason why everyone of this planet should switch to gas from intelligence. <laughs> okay, guys, you've heard it. Time to build competition for Archeon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I've heard from insider sources that you had a lot of demand from investors. You had quite some, somebody called it investor unfriendly terms, <laughs> which in the end just means that you're in the privileged position of choosing the deal that you want to have. So I'm very happy that it's running so well. And uh, another thing that I would love to make a loop back on is the hydrogen part. So why do you convert the energy into hydrogen and how does that look like? Our microbe needs some energy to grow, maintain itself and do the magic that it does. And the way it consumes it is by hydrogen, which you ultimately produce from water and electricity. So you're actually kind of splitting water, which is H2O, into hydrogen, H2, and oxygen using electricity called electrolysis. It's a pretty efficient process. There are different ways of producing hydrogen. There is gray hydrogen, not sustainably produced. There's green hydrogen, just using renewable electricity, and also using a kind of technology that is not ending up in, in lots of toxic waste, actually no toxic waste. And that's ultimately what we have to do. It's generally, it's getting more and more efficient. The energy crisis that we're experiencing in Europe and I think globally also pressured the planet and our economy to search for alternative energy sources and hydrogen is a big bet for that. It's actually also a way to store excess energy. You can not only store excess energy or surplus energy in batteries, you can also store it in producing hydrogen and you can store the gas uh, and ultimately use it. And would you try to have a completely vertically integrated process that you have a solar panel or some other kind of renewable source that directly feeds into the hydrogen production that directly goes into the manufacturing of your amino acids? Or would you externalize some parts of this? Yeah, if you look into the great vision, how a production facility for Arkin looks like, it's more or less involves exactly what you said. 
and kind of a joke, but not so much. It would also include kind of a brewery on site to produce mm -hmm. beer and having the CO2 there and utilize that for our process. But ultimately, I think most sense in regard of growing, having a stable supply chain is to really partner with hydrogen producers that are emerging, that are getting more and more efficient in producing and cheaper and partnering with industries that are producing huge excess of carbon dioxide. Flue gases from these industries is already that far that you have a very pure CO2 that you can retrieve from these industries that we can directly use for our fermentation. Yeah. Then there's this topic of carbon capture, of course, which is getting more attention. And this would more fall into the category of carbon capture utilization. But do you see potential for microbes in a carbon capture solution? As you're in the space, could The utopian solution just be we breed a lot of cute little microbes that eat away all of our carbon. Can we just settle on this? Let's we just have that. a microbe zoo in each <laughs> city. That's what's called biorefinery ultimately, right? There are certainly microbes like ours that are eating carbon dioxide and other carbon sources like carbon monoxide or like methane. They're utilizing it and produce something from it. But ultimately, it, it's... The, the complexity of our being and of this planet and of nature that everything finds its way one step further. So if you produce something, what is happening with this compound? The, it's exactly the same with the amino acids, right? We're eating them. But what is happening to it? Like biogas production is a beautiful example. We are taking waste material, we microbiologically utilize it, degrade it and produce a major share of methane. And now we can Two scenarios, for example. The one scenario is we use it for heating our households. That means we are having carbon dioxide again. So we are releasing carbon into the atmosphere. We could use this methane to microbiologically convert it to something else, to something else where we have another chance to do it and to not release too much carbon into the atmosphere. So there are a lot of opportunities and we see that also in the ag tech space where microbes are used to restore soil quality from natural fertilizers and so on. So it also goes outside carbon. So I really like your idea of the microbial zoo because it ultimately harbors a lot of opportunities. Yeah, that leads me to the ending question, which is, if you would have 50 million, in what businesses or solutions would you invest it in? Something I'm thinking since too long already is restoring our knowledge and consciousness and awareness on how we are dealing with goods on this planet. There was such a beauty of after World War II, like building up an industrialized food production system made us really flourish as a population, as a society. But ultimately, we lost the attachment to our food in a way. And imagine that you shuffle one ton of food a year through your body. That's intimidating to me. That's a lot. And if we don't understand like what that's implications that are coming with that. I think that yields in a lot of lifestyle diseases and so on that we are seeing currently in our society. And I feel gaining back this awareness of the importance of which food we're shuffling through is something I'm most exciting about. So if you tell me an educational kind of concept that can provide us and educate us again uh, on the importance of food to our body and health, and planetary health, I would totally invest it there. Red to green can offer that. <laughs> there we go. Shameless plug. Wouldn't that be kind of weird if you give me 50 million and I invest it back to red to green? <laughs> that's, how I, that's what I'm aiming at with this question. <laughs> Thank you so much. Really enjoyed diving into gas fermentation with you, Gregor. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to chat with you, Marina. It's cool. Thank you. 
According to Spotify stats, Red to Green is in the top 5% most shared and followed podcasts globally. Whoop whoop! Please keep this going. If you haven't subscribed yet, do so in your app of choice to not miss out on future seasons. Also check out our other seasons to get a deep dive into the food industry. Thanks to Celeste Gupta, our senior editor, as well as Robert Griffin for doing a second review. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable from red to green.